Sportsnet 590. Smith and Jones on a Tuesday. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. I think a lot of folks in our listening area might still be at home, hopefully not stuck on the roads. I know some of the roads are still in rough shape, or at least they were earlier this morning. Stay safe. Two hands on the wheel. Whether you're listening on the radio, on the podcast, whatever it may be, we'll keep you entertained while we've got you. And if you're a student at home, congratulations. Two straight snow days. <laughs> and hopefully you're actually doing the asynchronous thing, which means you're not doing any work. Or you actually have a full-on snow day, and it means you're not doing any work. And you're not actually stuck at home doing online learning. Because if you're doing online learning, I'm guessing you're not even listening to us right now. Or maybe you're kind of cheating a bit. Your camera's off. Your microphone is off. You're pretending to work, but you're actually listening to Smith & Jones. And while I wouldn't normally condone that, I'll let it go right now. Last night, the Raptors... Tried to get something, ultimately got nothing. They lose to the Miami Heat, uh, 104-99 in a in a pretty, you know, I think I, maybe thrilling is a little too far. Very entertaining game, highly competitive game, but somebody that got nothing, who should have got something, was Mr. Martin. Like that was beyond ridiculous. Martin's foul on OG Ananobi that was reviewed for a flagrant could have easily 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 in my mind been a flagrant too but 1000 percent, i would have bet the farm it was going to at least be a flagrant one and it comes back after review as a common foul like i we've said this a couple of times on our broadcast jonesy and i'll repeat it again and i said it last night yelling at the television and i said it when i tweeted out that's not a common foul. The league has to protect its players. That was a hell of a dunk, but the league has to do more to protect its players. And I don't know anymore. I'm at the point, and again, this is what we've said. I don't know what's a foul. I don't know what's a common foul. I don't know what's a flagrant foul. I don't know a flagrant one versus a flagrant two. Every time they go to the replay now, I scratch my head. It's, it's a guess. I'm not even going to take credit anymore if we get it right, and I'm not going to take blame if we get it wrong because I am at the point where I have zero clue. When you watch that play, the way that Martin comes down, sweeping across uh, OG from behind, I don't believe he was making a play on the ball. I'm not saying he was out headhunting, but it certainly looked like he was more looking to foul and break up the play and not look for the block. But then on top of that, yes, momentum was bringing him to the baseline. Yes, they are shorter baselines in Miami than a lot of arenas around the league. But that extra shove at the end as well that sent OG flying, or, or excuse me, that sent Scotty Barnes flying, that was excessive. And I have seen far less in the NBA called than that. And I was, and I'm not un. I'm not overstating this. I am, or was, shocked, shocked that there was not a flagrant foul called. And I believe the league still should look at that today. And I will be shocked if Martin doesn't walk away with some sort of fine. He's not going to be suspended, but that could have been extremely, extremely worse. Like, if Scotty Barnes doesn't get up, Jonesy, and he still did get up wincing and limping, but if he doesn't get up and he ends up getting, you know, like a busted bone, a blown-out knee, a concussion, or worse, and, and is hurt even worse, or if that fan is hurt worse or something, 
Does that change things? Or because he was able to just get up and walk away from the fray? And then you're telling me that officials who have called the game, who have been there between the lines, are in the replay center in New York, in Secaucus. So not New York. But in Secaucus, they're in the replay center watching that, combined with two if not three other officials with headsets on watching that, and every single one of them didn't see what I'm ranting about right now, which I think you're about to back as well. Maybe I'm wrong, which I think you're about to back. You tell me not one of those people thought that was a flagrant? That's bogus to me, beyond bogus. What do you think? Uh, they, they, were, they were unquestionably flagrant fouls, uh, without question. Based on what we have seen in the past and judgments and, and adjudications we have witnessed in the past, those were, those were definitely flagrant fouls. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure, and I'm with you, and I've, I, we've said this all along. I don't know anymore. I don't know. I can't, I can't judge the sliding scale for flagrant fouls. I stick to the words that we talk to the referees about in our meetings. Flagrant one is unnecessary. Flagrant two is unnecessary and excessive. All you have to do is look at those as your, as your touchstones when calling flagrant fouls. And if the league wants it that way, there's, there's no way, there's no way you're catching Scotty Barnes with a four step lead on a breakaway layup. That was, that was like chase layups when you're, when you're in grade nine or grade 10 on the midget team. And one guy gets the ball at center and you're trying to teach hustle and you're trying to teach making layups under pressure. You tell the guy to chase, but don't touch him. Just just run as hard as you can. If you can, you know, your idea is to get to the baseline before the other guy does uh, behind. And if you can touch him on the backside, then that layup would be no good. But, I mean, everybody sees LeBron and thinks they can do the chase down. You can only do the chase down if you're within range to get a guy. And I, I just don't think you're catching Scotty Barnes. And that's where the referees have to look at it and say, all right, I know what he was trying to do, but that's unnecessary at that point. And then to boot, as you say, the tumble into the stands, taking the fan out, taking the popcorn out, like just wipe everything out. I, I just, I, I don't get it anymore. I, I can't, you know, it's, it was like, you know, the clear path stuff. I, I, and I'm one who prides myself on knowing the rules and the interpretations. And you know me, I'm all over the competition committee. I want this. I want that. Let's see this. Let's see that. I can't figure it out anymore. And I, I just, I, now you're telling me that I can't figure it out. The three guys at the arena, the three refs at the arena can't figure it out. And the people in the replay center can't figure it out either. I, 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 I don't buy that. I don't buy that. I, I think there has to be some set criteria and and t- to make the game safer and protect players. Somebody just hit us up. Well, maybe hit me up. Yeah, I think it was just directly to me. Folks, you can always hit message us on Twitter. Eric, double underscore Smith. Paul, double underscore Jones. We have two plain names, so we had to throw in that extra underscore. Eric, double underscore Smith. Paul, double underscore Jones. Or you can hit the text line, 590-590. A guy wrote me. And I'm assuming he's saying this critically. I'm assuming. His name's Pablo. He says he was trying not to get hurt or hurt the fans. Raptors glasses. I assume that means we're looking at this through Raptors glasses. Pablo, I'll say this to you, and I'm sure Jonesy wants to weigh in too. You're wrong. You're flat out wrong. You're entitled to your opinion, but I'm telling you, you're wrong. 
at least in terms of your assessment of Raptors glasses. I absolutely guarantee that if we right now we're talking about, uh, I don't know, Dylan Brooks chasing down Russell Westbrook on the exact same play, I'd be saying that Dylan Brooks should have been called for a flagrant foul and Russell Westbrook should have gone to the line and the Lakers should get the ball as well. This has got zero to do with Raptor glasses as a Raptor broadcaster. And we aren't the only ones. E, e, like e. social media, just give me one second, Jonesy. Social media being what it is, yeah. that's, all I can, that's all I can react to right now. The players, the media, the fans, whatever, that are even outside of Toronto that are reacting the same way because there were two infractions on that play. Even if you think that he was trying to not get hurt, okay, he was trying to either brace Scotty or even brace himself from not also being hurt, that doesn't change the initial play. There were two separate infractions on that play that could have been called flagrants. Jonesy. Let's remember the play, the gruesome play, that you and I witnessed in Boston in 2007 or eight. Yes. When, uh, I don't remember yeah. who it was. Who had the breakaway layup? I don't know who. I don't remember who it was. Al but Jefferson. Jorge Garbajosa. Al Jefferson. Al Jefferson. Jorge Garbajosa, the the hustle guy that he is, doing something similar to what Caleb Martin tried to do yesterday. Tried to run down Al Jefferson. He sees a big, slow, lumbering guy. I'm quick. I can run him down. And he tried to run him down. And missed, and for all intents and purposes, ended his career. Mm-hmm. He was never the same after that. He was never the same, never had the same impact after that. So that's one where you say, I know you're trying to make the hustle play, but just give him the two points. Give, give him the two points. It's not at the end of the game. Uh, you know, only so many people can do the LeBron chase down, and it's. It's like the one in 10 that you get, but everybody thinks they're that one. And I admire the hustle. Don't take that away. I would want to see them run the guy down. But then you get to the point where where you realize you can't do anything. Let it go. Let it go. That's That's all I can say. That's all I can say. Go back. Pablo, I don't know how old you are, and I'm not making this a... A referendum on age and get off my lawn, hashtag I'm an old man and I know everything. I'm not doing that, but go watch that play. And it was what Garbo did in retrospect, like you didn't have to do that. It was unnecessary. And that's, yep. and that's, it, it, this is along the same lines, except everybody got up and walked away from the fray. And I, you know what still stands out about that play now as we shift gears for a second here, just doing some reminiscing here. Um, and I'm not. I'm not saying this, Jonesy. I'm not. I'm not saying this, making fun of you. But it was such a gruesome no, play. No, I've told people this. Paul play. Jones I've picked up people. his chair and literally turned his chair around and pointed his chair at the stands and was broadcasting to the crowd while I was bug-eyed and fixated on the gruesomeness that was unfolding in front of me. And in fact, uh, I guess somewhat ironic or coincidentally that you bring up the story. At the bottom yeah, of the hour, in guest. about 15 minutes, our next guest yeah. was right in the mix of that. Jose Calderon, former Raptor, now a member of the Cleveland Cavaliers front office, is going to join us. And, in fact, I know 
I did an interview recently in the last couple of years with Jose, uh, an extensive sort of sit-down interview with Jose, and we talked about this play. Maybe I can get Jose, we can get Jose to to recount a couple of those thoughts, but he was the guy that ran out on the floor for his teammate, for his countryman, for his friend, period, and all but sat on Garbo's chest, like put all of his body weight on Jorge Garbajosa's chest to keep him down on the floor to keep Garbo from being able to see his mangled leg and the bone that was basically sticking out. And they um, threw a towel over it. Remember yes. that? E? Somebody threw yep. a towel over it. I, don't I know think it, it might have been Ray Chow, one of the Raptor trainers that ran out. They threw the towel over the leg, and Jose, recognizing that Garbo was clearly in shock, was trying to sit up. And, and I'm telling you, I, Jonesy, I reference it to this day. You moving your chair to point the other way because you didn't want to look at it, understandably. Me being like just sort of like fixated on it, I couldn't look away. But the scream, the sh- like the shriek from a grown man crying out in agony like that, I've never experienced before that and have not experienced since. Like the noise well, that came out of his body with the fear and the pain and the shock, I don't ever want to hear again. And that's what stands out for me more than anything in that play. Like that well, was it was the sec. It was the awful. second time I'd heard that. Yeah, it was the second time I'd heard that. E, I was, uh, and we've had him on our show, Joe Theismann. I remember right. the Monday night game where he had his leg broken, and you could hear like somebody snapped their fingers on TV, and it was the sound of his leg breaking. I, I'm sorry, I'm not. I don't mean to get too graphic with people, but when I saw that from Garbo, that's exactly what it reminded me of, and I was not going to look. So. Goes back to our point. I think the chase down where he couldn't get to Scotty Barnes, I think that was unnecessary. And I think you make a great point. If Scotty had laid there in the stands and sold it, I, I think we would have had a different outcome on, on the ruling. So, uh, look, that being said, the Raptors were right in that game. Um, they're, they're at the halfway point of the season, Eric. And, um, you know, 21 and 20, I, I thought best case scenario for this team over the course of not best case, um, kind of middle of the road, best case scenario would have been in the top six and they could still be because nobody was giving them that. I thought more plausible, probable might be somewhere around 500, 41 and 41. And I think the worst case scenario would be finishing out of the play and, and, I think you need to get some experience for those guys, for the kids, for Scotty, uh, for a guy like like Precious, uh, you know, Champagny. Uh, OG could use a little bit more playoff experience. He didn't play in twenty uh, in in twenty nineteen when when they uh, won the championship, and he got a little he got a little bit in the bubble. But that I don't I don't I shouldn't say I don't count that, but it's a little bit different the bubble playoff experience. Uh, but Champagny and Precious Achua and just kids like Banton and Flynn, you know, Watanabe, being in a playoff, a seven-game playoff atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I remember when Isaiah Thomas ran the Raptors back in the early years. He would plan road trips to the finals and take Damon Stoudemire and Marcus Camby and take these guys to the finals to show them the intensity of the finals and what it takes to play in games like that. The crowd, uh, you, you know, the, the, the importance of every possession, all of that stuff. So uh, I would love to see the Raptors hang in, get into 
a seven-game series at the end of this season and win or lose, I think that's, you know, that's a, a good starting point for where they are going forward on this, on this retool slash rebuild with, with important young players. All right, so you bring up an interesting point in saying that, Jonesy, and I, I, I echo all that. I agree with you. I can't imagine anybody would disagree that they need the experience. How then do you balance what's happening right now? Because what's happening right now is, and I also don't disagree with this approach as um, unique as it is, the rotation has been beyond tightened. Last night, the Raptors played six players. Justin Champagne got hurt. We're awaiting word today on, on if you know he's fine or if there's any severity. But Ananobi, Siakam, Achua, Barnes, Van Vliet, and Boucher. We didn't see a lick of Banton, Flynn, Watanabe, or Mihailuk. And this has become kind of the norm of late. Nick Nurse, again, he hasn't just tightened the rotation. He has cranked it damn near shut. And he's going with six, seven guys regularly now. And... Again, I don't disagree with it because if you're not getting what you need from the second unit, then you know what? I'm rolling with my guys. I'm, I'm rolling with what I got. And I'm rolling with the best players that I think can, think can put me in a position to win. But obviously, the flip side of that is, A, will you be wearing out your starters? B, do you potentially put them at a higher risk for injury because they're being overworked? Or Pascal Siakam said afterwards, hey, I can play 42 minutes. I'm fine. We're still a young team. We're okay. But also see, to your point, Jonesy, about experiences and development. If you're not playing those people, just like any other industry, right? How do I get experience if you don't give me experience? How do I get, you know, game reps in the regular season, let alone playoffs, if I'm not playing? How am I going to learn? Whether I'm Banton, Flynn, Mihailuk, Watanabe. It's, it's, it's sort of the, the flip-flop of both, both uh, looking at things from different angles, I guess, Jonesy. And that's where we're at now with the Raptors at this midway point. Like, the bench has not been great this year, so do you not play the bench? Or do you have to lean into them a little bit more and trust them a little bit more? Or is this um, sort of a, a message that, hey, I need more? And does the organization need to do more to improve the bench? I, I, I don't know, because I don't think you can keep up like this for the next 41 games going with a 6-7 man rotation. I, I think you, all of those points are valid, E. All of it, all of it. Um, I, I don't know, maybe it's the, the former player athlete in me. Um, I, I, I never worry about minutes. There, there are all of a sudden these, the minutes police have developed where people, oh, look at how many minutes this guy played, whatever. Hey, he, these guys are all young. I mean, for the most part, they're young, they're competitive. No player wants to come out of the game. And, uh, you know, Nick talked about it last night. He, he didn't feel that he, he needed anybody else or wanted to go to anybody else. To one of your other points, is it a message to the guys on the bench? Yes. Is it a, um, I don't know if I would say, may, is it something that the organization has decided that we're going to roll with these guys? until we can find some deals that will strengthen our bench and strengthen our depth? Maybe. It, it, it's all maybes in that case. But I never worry about um, – I, I never want to become the minutes police. Look at how much this guy's playing. Yeah, there, it takes a toll. I'm going to admit that. And you'd like to, uh, you'd like to save some minutes and, and rest guys when you can. But 
as a coach, I don't know if I would ever, ever do that at the expense of, of winning a game. I mean, it's like I say this all the time. It's like the coach that doesn't call a timeout when his team's down 10 in the middle of the middle of the second quarter and the other team's going to town. No, no, no. Let them play through it. I'm I'm saving those timeouts for the end of the game. Okay, that's great. You you keep those timeouts in your pocket when you're down 20 at the end of the game and see what what good they do you. Like use it, use the timeout, and it's mm-hmm. it's like the minutes. I mean, sure you can save minutes on Fred and leave him on the bench, but if the guys out on the floor aren't doing the job, either closing a lead, maintaining uh, closing a gap, maintaining a lead, or extending a lead, then their shifts are going to be short. I'm sorry, that's. I mean, that's, I, I can see that philosophically. I mean, it cost Frank Vogel his job against the Raptors in the playoff series when he left Paul George on the bench too long and then couldn't get him back into the game as the play was going up and down and there was no whistles. Raptors win that, win that seventh game at home. Um, I, 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 there's a lot in there, Eric, and I, I, I agree with you. There are concerning things, but uh, you got to win games. You, you got to win games. And I'm sure Nick Nurse as a coach looks at it like that. Hey, man, those L's are being pinned on my record. And I, yep. I'm winning games. I'm trying to win games. And uh, if you ask Fred if he's playing too many minutes, in a quiet moment, maybe he'll say, yeah, you know, I'm tired. But I'm tired doesn't necessarily translate to I'm playing too many minutes. That can be interpreted as I go out there and I work hard. But do I want to come out of the game? Uh, not really. Yeah, and how many times have we heard coaches, let alone players themselves, say, hey, man, if I'm asked to crank it up for 45 minutes, you know, three, four times a week, and I'm able to thus then get proper rest and, and recuperation and whatever else in between, and that to me is the key. If if Nick Nurse, and I don't know this for certain, but if Nick Nurse is basically saying, give me all you got on Monday night, on Wednesday night, on Friday night, and in between, you'll you'll come to practice, but you'll be getting work off on the side. You'll be getting treatment. You, you'll you'll work as much as you want to work. The other guys, they're going to be working. I'll be putting them through the grind. But you guys, my regulars, just show up for the games and make sure you give me all for your games. And I don't have a problem with that at all. And, and to be clear, I don't know if I said it clear, Jonesy, I don't have a problem with what's going on right now either. I would be doing the same thing. I'd be playing my best players. Because it's pretty clear that you're not getting a lot from your second unit, and it's halfway through the season now. If the message isn't getting through, or the production simply isn't getting through, then at what point do you stop doing what you were doing and try something else? So you know what? It's time to try something else. I'm rolling with the guys that are playing well that are getting me what I need. And until you prove, like, it might have only lasted one game, but Chris Boucher had a DNP this year. Chris Boucher wasn't a major part of the rotation, and he kept working his tail off and has earned his spot back, and now he's a main cog yet again as he was last season. So Nick Nurse is the kind of guy that will reward hard work and production, but if it ain't there, he's not gonna just going to blindly go to it, right? So I don't have a problem with it either, Joe. Well, you have to I, earn I your really minutes. Don't. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you, you have to earn your minutes, Eric. And, and uh, look, Nick Nurse is trying to win games. And, and uh, I, I don't – personally, I don't like to talk about minutes and be the minutes police. I mean, people, people did that to Tom Thibodeau. Like, oh, he's playing the starters too many minutes. And, and, you know, he loses his job because he's worn – like the management wanted him to 
to rest guys more. And he says, okay, like you, you want me to rest my starters more? Then we'll lose games. Then what? Are, are, am I going to be okay when I lose games and following your direction? It's one of those, I'm going out, I'm going out my way. And, you know, Mike D'Antoni did the same thing with, with the Steve Nash Phoenix Suns. And he went seven, eight guys. He doesn't play his bench. He just, he, he trusts the guys he trusts. And if you can't earn the coach's trust and the right to go into the game, then you're going to sit. I mean, one of the guys we were talking about, E, Justin Champagny. Look at what look at what he's done. He's come from, you know, being a two-way guy to probably what the eighth man in the rotation now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's earned that. The Raptors now, as we mentioned, officially at the halfway point, sitting at twenty-one and twenty. They are the ninth seed in the East. They are a half game behind the Washington Wizards in eighth, and now a game and a half back of the Charlotte Hornets in seventh, and three games back of the Philadelphia 76ers, who sit in sixth. Of note as well, five straight wins for the Cleveland Cavaliers, who are now nine games above 500 and officially in the fourth seed in the Eastern Conference. The Raptors this week stay on the road with their next game coming up on Wednesday in Dallas against the Mavs, the fifth seed in the Western Conference, and they will close out the week on Friday with a game in Washington against the aforementioned Wizards before coming back home for two on Sunday and next Tuesday against the Blazers and the Charlotte Hornets, respectively, before then closing out the month with three more on the road. So a lot of road games coming for the Raptors, a lot of quality opponents, a lot of playoff opponents, and uh, the Raptors obviously... We'll look to uh, begin the official second half of the season on a positive note again against Doncic, excuse me, Luka Doncic and the Dallas Mavericks on Wednesday. And we will have that broadcast for you right here on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Speaking of the Mavericks, a former Mav, a former Raptor, a former Cav, now working for the Cleveland Cavaliers, one of the all-time favorites here, fan favorites, one of the all-time greats as well here in Raptor history. Jose Calderon will join us next on Smith & Jones. Smith and Jones, Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Make sure you subscribe to Smith and Jones wherever you get your podcast. Please rate and review as well. I know this is like a cheap plug for the show and, and, and maybe patting ourselves on the back, but I sent a tweet out the other day, Jonesy. Our, our man Mark Boffo and, of course, Lance Kennedy, our, our, our crew, uh, putting together the show. Like, Boff is like the guests. I look back at last week. I mean, a who's who of, of NBA insiders and players and coaches and, and whatnot. So if you're an NBA fan, if you're a basketball fan, if you're a sports fan, make sure you subscribe to the show because even if you're listening right now, right this very second, maybe you can't tomorrow. So listen anytime you want when you're going up for your walk, when you're out shoveling the five feet of snow that we got, when you're, when you're traveling and you're kicking up on the beach and saying, forget you people back in the snow. Listen to Smith & Jones anytime you want by subscribing to the podcast on Apple, on Google, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe. Hit that follow button. Hit that, that uh, subscribe button. And please rate and review as well. Raptors getting set for their next game coming up on Wednesday against the uh, Dallas Mavericks. We'll be 
joined in a few minutes' time here by Jose Calderon, former Toronto Raptor who's now working in the front office for the Cleveland Cavaliers as a special advisor to the front office. And, you know, when I saw this news come along, Jonesy, you you get happy uh, and you feel good about good things happening to good people. And Jose, I've been doing a lot of these class chats of late the last couple weeks. I told you about that, jumping on some Zoom calls and Google Meets Mm -hmm. and all that with various Mm -hmm. uh, classes. And they often have said, who's your favorite player? Uh, of all time who's your favorite raptor and i and i've said this is my answer to a lot of uh, the classes i've said i come at it and i say this respectfully i come at it from a bit of a different angle because i'm not just looking at the the stats and the player as the player i get to know these players as people sometimes as well so that influences my quote-unquote favorites and the guy who has been at the top of my list forever i've said this to you before not just because he's a colleague now for years i said alvin williams but I, in the same conversation, I say, and I don't know about you, but I say, and again, talking my favorite when I think of players slash people, Alvin Williams, Anthony Parker, Matt Bonner, Jose Calderon, DeMar DeRozan, Fred Van Vliet. And again, that's not to say that names I didn't mention weren't great people, weren't great individuals as well, let alone great players. I'm not trying to leave anybody off the list, but those are the ones that jump out to me right away when, I, when I'm asked that question. Yeah, it, it's hard. I mean, uh, for me, I, I, I'm, I was so, I guess, impressionable in the first, in the early years with the guys mm-hmm. that, um, that were in the league and I looked at as like they were vets. They were good players on other teams before they came to Toronto and calling the games and then meeting them and recognizing how, um, Regardless of what how they were perceived in the media and how uh, how their how their kind of lives went, their, my interactions with them were, were things that I would say, "Wow, like this." I I, I had no idea that. I mean, he, he's he's kind of nutty, but I had no idea that Alvin Robertson was such a good guy. Like like his his interactions with me were such were so genuine. Now he's done some crazy stuff in his life. And I'm sure he's disappointed people, but, uh, you know, the way he treated me in the first year, when there was one bus, when we travel now, Eric, what is there, three or four buses now? <laughs> there's, there's, uh, it's, it's, it's crazy. But when there was one bus and I, I kind of get on and I'm, I'm looking for a seat that I don't, don't want to disturb anybody. And he would say, hey, kids, sit here. Come on, Jonesy, sit here. And. I would sit with them, you know, and, and we get talking about stuff. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, he's he's one of the guys that I would put on my list, but just my interactions with them. So I don't know if I could do that. You have favorites and I, I, I guess I have favorites, too. But uh, I've just seen so many so many good people come through the organization um, and, and not just players, but in terms of coaching staff too, guys that uh, that I, I really enjoyed. Uh, sitting and talking about the game with, um, so I, I I I guess I come at it from a different angle. I don't know if I could really name uh, if you put a gun to my head. You, hey hey, give me your favorites. I mean, some of the guys that you talked about in that era. I mean, Jose is one of my all time. Uh, when they were going through a period when the team was losing, he stood in front of us every night, and he was ready to talk. Um, yeah, he's a colleague now. Alvin would definitely be. You know, up at up at up at the top of my list. Uh, there are, I I, I can't even think, Eric. I couldn't give you ten. You know me. You'd say ten, and I give you twenty-three. 
So, um, but but I am I am looking forward to talking to Jose because yes, he is he is one of one of the all time greats and one of my all time favorites. Well, he's on the line right now, special advisor to the front office of the Cleveland Cavaliers, Jose Calderon. Jose, great to chat with you. Happy New Year. Hope you're doing well. Hey, hello, guys. Happy New Year. Good to hear your voices. Amigo, que pasa? <laughs> Todo bien. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I did over the over the uh, pandemic, Eric. I took on, on Duolingo. I, I tried to learn Spanish, but... Uh, as you can see, uh, my, my vocabulary isn't that extensive. No, no, apparently not. My, my, and my, uh, what I did is I just studied Spanish wines, and it, it, it involved uh, drinking a lot of them to, to figure out which was the best one. Um, <laughs> Jose, congratulations, first of all, on, on the new job. How did this come to be? Because you've, you've done quite a bit in, in your retirement already from, from various roles, and certainly with the Players Association, and now all of a sudden to join an organization and to come to the Cavaliers. How did this all come together? Well, it's been it's been a while. Uh, we talked for a while, and you guys know my last two years since I retired, I was uh, a special assistant to Michelle Roberts at the Player Association, so I was able to to be involved with everything in the NBA, you know, from scheduling to the protocols, uh, the bubble, and all other stuff. So for me, it was an amazing learning process, and uh, you know, I have a good relationship with Kobe, with Kobe Alman. He was uh, he was great. Uh, he was the one who brought me to to Cleveland when uh, when we were when I was there as a player, and we kept that relationship. Uh, we talked a few times. We we he was asking a lot of you know about uh, what was the next step, what I was looking for, and uh, well, one of those conversations you know end up uh, uh, with this with this uh, role now after a lot of meetings, and I traveled to Cleveland a couple of times, and uh, uh, I asked Michelle at the beginning for uh, for permission to 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 be able to talk to to them, and um, yeah, it's, it's an amazing role. I'm really excited about it. It's the other part that I was missing. Uh, I guess I was a professional player. I was in the PA, and now to see how uh, a, a team really work from the inside so i'm uh yep i'm can't wait to start uh, jose what what uh, what what are they going to take advantage of in terms of your skills in the front office is it is it is it player evaluation is it operational uh, around stuff what where do you think you could be the biggest help to to kobe altman and and uh, the cleveland cavaliers well, first of all, it's going to be both in both sides. I think I can I can have a different point of view just because being a former player and uh, being with the PA as well. I know have a lot of contacts. I got a great relationship all around the the league, international as well. So I brought my my point of view from that uh, for sure. And after uh, organization wise, I think it's something I learned a lot in the last uh, couple of years with the with the PA, with the NBA, talking with the task force. But uh, it's, it's a learning process for me as well. So yes, I'm going to help as much as I can and they will be able to help me as well to to be where i can be more uh of a uh yeah of a point of uh of, of advice i guess so um so i will be doing a little bit i even uh watching a couple of ncaa games that i never watched before and i wanted to be part of that as well just to, to keep learning but uh but yes like you said i think it will be more about all nba and now the the the, the trade deadline is coming and the draft after that a free agency and just have a different point of view for sure Speaking with Jose Calderon, special advisor to the front office of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Jose, let's go back like, I don't know, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it is. At what point, or was there a point in your mind where you thought, all right, when I'm done playing, you know, I want to do X. Did you say in your mind, one day I envision being a coach, a general manager, working in a front office? Or is this something that has just sort of evolved and happened? 
No, I think you got to be ready for. I think that's what uh, most players struggle after the season. You know, after the career, doesn't matter if it's three years, five or, or, or ten, doesn't matter. I think that's the key. Is like, what do you want to do next? Uh, doesn't matter how much money you made before. It's about uh, you cannot just sit at home and just do nothing. I think you wanted to be involved. That's that's the way I am, and I wanted to keep learning. So that's what I uh, I did my last few years of, of of playing. It was learning. It was studying. It was doing some some mastering different things and um, be, be, being sure that if the opportunity arrived, I was going to be ready for it. Um, uh, it wasn't sure if it was going to be a front office or it was going to be working with the PA, but I knew I wanted to be uh, involved with basketball. And that's why I moved to New York, too, uh, after I retired, because the NBA headquarters were here, the PA were here, there were two NBA teams, and everybody was going to go through the city. So it was a little bit of a strategic to, to, to move here to New York. And, uh, well, uh, so far, so good. I cannot complain. Jose, when you when you uh, look back at your experiences, uh, especially that time in New York with the PA, what surprised you? What did you learn that you, uh, you know, working with the PA and being involved with the league? What did you learn to, uh, that surprised you? And said, man, I, boy, I really had no idea about this, or I, I didn't know how this worked, and now I feel much more comfortable being around it or understanding how it worked and. And maybe it, it changed your perspective looking back as a player, too, at those times. It changed a lot of things. I think there is no, like, major things, but there is a lot of details that when you're a player, you don't even think about it. Or you think you know, but actually don't, doesn't work that way. Uh, and I think that's the key. So from how uh, everything, yeah, how, how things are done, how uh, the relationship with the NBA and the PA are, uh, uh, how things are working together to to create, how the new rules, new changes, uh, new tournaments uh, like the play-in, like how everything goes step by step, and even even uh, something like the All-Star, uh, small little details that you think they're like, uh, okay, let's do just this. And there is a lot of work uh, going behind the scenes, and a lot of people working together, both sides, and, and how uh, you know at the end of the day, that's that's kind of like the key of working together to create the best league uh, in the world and, and to the best environment, you know, because at the end of the day, there is a lot of people looking at us. And um, so all those details, I think, is something you're learning. It's something like, it's not like they surprised me, but it was something like great to, to see how things are done. Speaking with Jose Calderon, Jose, is this kind of, um, uh, what's the best word, invigorating for you at this point, like in your life, in your career, to to have a new challenge, to, to kind of go back to maybe when you, you first started playing the game, you're learning something new, you're learning a new skill set, and you're trying to, to find a, that, that sort of new path in life in, in post-playing, and it's a new challenge to take on. That in itself, I assume, has just got to be uh, thrilling and sort of inspiring in a sense to look at what now is ahead of you and the opportunities that might exist in the coming years. Eric, totally. I think that's, that's the key for me. Uh, it's just about that. It's about a new challenge. It's about to being able to help, to learn, uh, and to keep growing as a, as a person. And uh, as in this case, I'm being in this side of basketball and I'm being close to it. But it's that. It's, it's just a new challenge. That's why I'm really excited. And, and let's see where I can help the most and figure out where I can be, um, you know, uh, helpful to, to this organization and, and to keep growing in an organization like they're doing an amazing job lately. And a lot of young guys there and, and going in a, in a amazing direction and, and just be 
being part of that for me is is, uh, is a challenge, uh, but I love it. I love challenges, as you guys know me, and um, you know uh, I'm willing to do whatever it takes, you know, to to keep learning, to keep uh, trying to help those guys, and uh, that's that's why I I accepted this role because I think I'm I can I can be a part of something uh, really really amazing and, and and just bring my 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 little bit of uh, of course the in there for sure. Jose. Um... I want to reflect back on your time in Toronto. You were beloved by the fans. You, you came over here. Uh, Rob Babcock brought you over as an, an undrafted player, and you really made your mark in the NBA, and I, and, and I look at where you are now. What, what are some of your fondest memories of Toronto, be they uh, the fans? Uh, are there particular games that stand out for you, are, uh, uh, teammates? What, when you think about Toronto and, and your time here, what, what jumps out at you? I mean, it's everything, Paul. It's, it's the, the place where I live the, the second most after where I'm from. You know, um, this is eight, it was eight years. Uh, I still only place there. I have so many friends. Uh, as you guys know, when when I see you guys on the road or even in Toronto when I visit, it, it, it's everything. Uh, how the, the city uh, embraced me when I arrived there, even just a, a little kid coming from Spain that didn't speak a lot of English at that time. But it's just, uh, you know, all this uh, relationship that I built. It's not about basketball for me. It was about... And the fans, you know, when I interact with them, even in social media now, whatever, it's not about how good I play or how bad I play. It was about uh, how we feel together. And um, I felt part of that city, of, of Toronto, of, uh, of you guys, you know. When I see you guys, it's not the same. When I see all the guys around the league, it's just different. It's, I don't want to say family, but, I mean, it's, it's closer, you know, uh, uh, with Toronto. That That's always going to be like that because it was eight years. But eight years in an important part of my life is, you know, from 22 to, to, to 20, from 23 to 30. So those years are really important. My, my family was growing as well in there. So it was a lot of things like that's nothing is going to change that. You know, it's, it's interesting, Jose, as you're answering that question, I'm thinking about one of the things that I've often said about a lot of players. And, and um, I, I, I could say the same thing about you, but the one that, that certainly comes to mind was Kyle Lowry. The change in Kyle as a person, let alone as a player, just because – he got older. He, he grew up. He matured. And especially when he had kids and became a father and realized that he was now living for somebody else and he was trying to set an example how he changed as a person. And, and you know, the, all the stories that you heard about, whether it was in Memphis or Houston, that oh, Kyle might be a bad guy or a bad teammate. We saw none of that in Toronto. And the person that he became, I think, simply through maturity. And that, I guess, speaks to you and so many others. And I don't know if this maybe applies, Jose, to your role now or what something you might watch for. Um, in the front office, the young people that no. come into this game that just aren't mature yet. They're, they're not there yet in life and trying to make sure that they stay on the right path and do the right things and, and, that, and that they're taught properly how to just be a professional and how to handle what life is throwing at them. Yeah, and I think that's the part of the business we sometimes we forget about it. Like there are guys who are 18, 19 years old. Uh, we forgot how we were when we were 18 or 19 years old. I think that's the key. Uh, like you just say, I think when, when Kyle arrived, <laughs> he was great for me one. I never had a, a problem with Kyle or we never saw that. I think it's too who, who is around, how is the, the, the team, how is the organization, how is the environment, how is the media, how the media treat the players. Are we always looking for the, the no as good things or are we looking 
just for the for the positive part how we we can work together because at the end of the day we all uh, want the best for for that team and that city and I think all of that is, is it matters I think that's important and those environments depend on what those guys arrive I think it can change and it can make a, a totally different career for those 18 19 year uh, kids that arrive and and whatever they see that's what they're going to learn so that's why it's so important to have that foundation and that uh, organization those those right steps and sometimes we say about the right bets but it's it's organization as well you have you need the bet but you need the organization to work on the same uh, page uh, jose eric and i were talking uh, about um the raptor game last night and there was a there was a hard foul and they reviewed it it wasn't they they ruled that it wasn't a flagrant but it took us back to the to the night that in boston when garbo tried to run down i couldn't even remember it was eric that remembered al jefferson and and Garbo had that, that gruesome, gruesome injury and, and just watching you and how compassionate and how great you were with, you call him your brother, uh, and, 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 uh, and looking at where he is now, because he's, he's part of the, the, the Basketball Federation in Spain. Um, what, do you, what do you remember about that night and remember going forward after that with him recovering? We know he wanted to play for Spain in the Olympics and all of that. What do you remember about that night and going forward after that with your friendship and, and, and with Garbo? Well, we, we were family already. <laughs> you know, and I like to use that word a lot because we spent so much time together, like more time sometimes with our own families. So that day was a sad day. I know I didn't broke my my, my leg that day, but it, it felt like it. Uh, that, that was my feeling, and it was tough. And after, as a player, you know, uh, he wanted to be ready and, and to try to get the best, uh, you know, possibility to be able, like you say, to play and, and get back on court. And sometimes you got to talk and say, look, uh, Jorge, take your time. You want to keep playing. You want a longer career. This is just a tournament. But it's tough as a player. So, so it was a lot of things going back and forth. But always as, as friends, we are we, we are really close. We we talk every now and then, and uh, uh, we have dinner like a few uh, uh, months ago when I was there in Spain. So we we keep in touch, and he's so close. And uh, uh, like I said, he's a brother. Uh, no, it, it was before he arrived to Toronto, and, and he's keep being a brother for for life you know and um, but that, that's what happened and, and we got to be like I say I think whatever the environment is so important because uh, we got to support those guys when something like that happens and, and we got to support it in the right way you know Jose it's interesting as you speak about that right to, you just said it a couple of minutes ago coming over at a young age and, and life ahead of you and now all of a sudden you look you know almost almost 20 years 15 20 years later and Garbo's now the president of the Basketball Federation in Spain, and you work for the Players Association now in a front office in Cleveland. It's like, man, life can change in a hurry, and life comes at you, and, and it's, it's interesting just to see the paths and how people have just grown as people, let alone as players. So congratulations to, to you on the new job. We appreciate you joining us, and we'll look forward to seeing you uh, hopefully sometime soon. Oh, for sure. We'll see you even more often now, maybe with with this new role. So, really happy about that as well. And um, and be back to get uh, uh, back to some of my relationship, like because being in New York or not traveling a lot, sometimes you uh, you miss a lot. And uh, hopefully, we can see each other soon. Awesome. Thanks, Jose. Thanks, Jose. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. There is Jose Calderon, former Toronto Raptor, longtime Raptor, one of the all-time greats, one of the all-time fan favorites as well, and now uh, with the Cleveland Cavaliers as a special advisor to the front e. office. Um, great, great having him on, and, and you like, like yeah. I said, like when you see good things happen to good people. E, I'll never forget the ultimate compliment that Dwayne Casey gave Jose Calderon. He said, if I was a dad, 
and my daughter brought Jose home, like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> that is, I don't have a daughter, but yes, that's a, that is a high compliment, high compliment. I hope some dad said that about me, you know, I hope. I think my father-in-law did, I think. I think. I'm pretty sure he did. Well, at one time, um, at least, anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcast. Please rate and review as well. Back on Smith & Jones, Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Raptors coming off a loss last night to the Miami Heat in Dallas, getting set to face the Mavericks tomorrow in the midst of this five-game road trip. But they have now officially hit the midway point of the season. Still have a few games in, uh, in hand against uh, a lot of teams around the association after uh, they had a number of them postponed due to COVID protocols and whatnot. So the Raptors now, uh, I believe, the last team in the East to finally hit that official midway point at 21-20 and 20 to talk about the Raptors uh, both currently and maybe projecting a little bit forward towards the trade deadline and especially the second half of the season. On the line right now, our colleague from Sportsnet, sportsnet.ca, Michael Grange. Michael, thanks for the time as always. Always. Thanks, guys. Hey, Michael, is it fair to say, I mean, I'm trying to think back to, to your projections. I know what I thought about this team, what Jonesy did as well. Is it fair to say that in spite of everything that's happened to the Raptors with COVID and injuries and guys in and out of the lineup and fans and no fans and all the mess, this is kind of where we thought they'd be right around 500, maybe a couple above, a couple below, and that's actually saying something considering all they've been through. Oh, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I think I wrote that last night. I think, you know, it's one thing to be above 500, but it's another thing to get to be above 500 at the midway point, given I think they play four games with their top eight guys, depending on how you slice or carve that. Um, available, and uh, you know, I think they'd only played five games without more than two, without two or more of their top eight not available, if you follow what I'm saying. So, um, you know, every team's had some injuries. I, I don't even know if the Raptors' issues have been all that much worse, but I think, you know, Nick Nurse made the point that they did, there's just simply not a very deep team. And maybe that's a little bit of a surprise to me. I thought they were would be approved to be a little bit deeper out of training camp, but but uh, they're not. And so when you look at the whole picture, that they've kind of kept their head above water and they're really in touch with, um, you know, they at least have, can tell themselves they've got a chance to do something kind of interesting with uh, 41 games left to play. I think that you got to be. They have to be pleased with that. Michael, what do you do? Eric and I were kind of surmising about the bench. I mean, people are into the minutes that Fred is playing and Pascal. Going into the game last night, in the last five games, uh, Van Vliet was one, Siakam was two, and Ananobi was seven in terms of minutes played in the NBA. And, and I know the minutes police are out there, oh, you're wearing these guys down, but if you don't play them, you don't win, and I don't. Right now, the bench isn't giving them much, so I don't know how much of an option Nick has. And and for those people that worry about minutes, and and we know this, no player ever wants to come out of the game. And when you ask the guys what's going on, they'll say, "Well, I'm tired," but nobody's going to voluntarily come out of the game. They want to play. What 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 do the Raptors do with that that situation with the bench and outside of Boucher not getting much else? Boucher and Champagny really right now. Yeah, that's a great question, Jonesy. I mean, um, you know, and they've kind of 
they've kind of uh, sowed their own row, so to speak. I mean, I think there was plenty of opportunities, and guys have been given opportunities because of what was, you know, injuries and COVID and the rest of it to snare a role. I kind of wondered at the beginning of this year if there wouldn't be almost like a, a, a reprisal of the bench mob, you know, and, and a guy like uh, like Malachi Flynn would would get you know, we'll get the reins of a, of a pretty consistent second unit and, and, and that's how they would solve some of their minutes problems, but that hasn't happened. And there's certainly no sign that, that, um, you know, Nick nurse is looking to revive the minutes for some of these guys either. Um, and so, you know, you do have the trade line deadline coming up and, and typically that's when you kind of gather up some of your bench pieces and try to, supplement your top six or seven um it's you know it's kind of unusual it would be a bit of an unusual move to, to do the opposite right is to take a tie out of your top six or seven and try to add you know a 79 um so i just think it's it's a feature of where they're at right now i don't think it's a simple issue to solve unless they want to get into you know trading draft picks and and you know making deals for multiple players uh which as we know are difficult to do but, uh, you know, they're, they're just not a deep team. And, um, you know, and I, I think as much as there's a good reason to be optimistic uh, optimistic about what they've done this far and what they can do when they're healthy, I mean, you know, history proves they're not going to stay healthy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I think that's, that's something they've got to weigh too uh, as they, as in, over the next few weeks. Speaking with Michael Grange from Sportsnet, Michael, I guess that kind of begs the the, the million dollar question then, and 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 the age old question is how do you improve um, if you have to give something to get something, and what you have to give right now is a not a lot in terms of you know necessarily tradable assets, but also uh, you know, and I, I mean this, I don't mean this to sound disrespectful, I suppose, but. The guys haven't been playing, so I mean, even if even if uh, even if there is another team, I, listen, I know that they're pro scouting and 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 they watch the Raptors, and maybe there's somebody on the Raptor squad that's not playing a whole lot right now that uh, you know Team X thinks, oh well, this that guy could be great in our system, and and they they eyeball that whether the dude's playing any minutes for Nick Nurse or not. But how do you go out and make a deal of significance that's going to improve your roster when you're barely playing four, five, six guys in your bench? I've got to assume that kind of um, it maybe it doesn't tie Bobby Webster and Masai Ujiri's hands, but it certainly doesn't make their job any easier when they're looking to make said deals uh, involving players that are barely seeing the floor on the Raptors right now. Yeah, I mean, there's not many secrets in the league, right? And um, there's not truly that many front offices that are incompetent. Um, so, you know, the idea that you're going to, you know, mention Malachi Flynn's name and you're going to get the King's ransom as a result, I mean, forget it. It's not going to happen. Uh, they see all the same, same things that, that the Raptors see. They might believe in a different scenario. A given player could 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 reach their potential in a different way, but you know nobody's overpaying for that, right? Like they're trying to do that move on on the Chiefs from their point of view. So I think if you look at where the Raptors are, and, and if they did want to try and add something at the trade deadline, you know their assets are pretty obvious, and I don't think anyone listening to your show probably couldn't rhyme them off just like I can, right? Like you've got. Chris Boucher on an expiring contract at age 29. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, Malachi Flynn, kind of an interesting young player. There's probably some upside there, you, you think. Um, you know, Gary Trent's a very interesting contract. Um, he would probably be maybe the asset that you'd, you'd be able to move 
and it would, you know, that would be the most, there'd be the most interest in it. And, you know, where do you look at Ken Birch and, and Precious Achua and, and, you know, it becomes a lot of that has to do with, with what you're going to match for salaries and things like that. But, you know, those are the kind of, that's sort of your menu, right? Um, and then the other thing that you have to offer are future draft picks. Uh, the Raptors are very uh, reticent uh, for including those in deals uh, for good reason, right? Like, I mean, they are important assets. But, you know, the question that I, I kind of wonder about is the best players you have are both going to be 28 in a matter of months, right? Um, you know, there's Chris Boucher, sorry, you know, Fred and Pascal. And, you know, there's kind of a sense out there, wow, this is just the beginning, right? Like, this is the way they're playing. This is, this is just the start of something. Well, most likely, this, the level they're playing at, which is very, very high, this is it. Like, this is kind of, they're not, there's not like some other super level uh, for them to get to where Fred's scoring 35 points a night and Pascal's, you know, averaging 25 and 15. Like, that's not how it works. Um, this is what you have. Um, they're clearly able to be pretty effective players. And, you know, you have Scotty Barnes and OG and OG Ananobi, you know, just a little bit younger than them, or in OG, Scotty's case, a lot younger. So I guess that what I'm getting at is it, I'm, I would be curious as to why they wouldn't invest um, future assets to shore up and support uh, the group they have now. If you're not going to move off Pascal Siakam, if you're not going to, you know, trade, trade Fred Bentley, which is kind of unfathomable, what's holding you back from making a move to support what they have? And, 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 you know, you can go through that roster or line up and go, you know, decide what your biggest weakness or weakness is. But, but that's sort of the question I, I come to because, you know, and I think that you would have to attach future picks or multiple future picks to get the kind of players that you'd need to make this team better. Interesting, Michael. I mean, because Eric and I talked about that. Are you a buyer or a seller? To me, I'm. I always would always. If I was in a front office, I would always consider myself a buyer, and trying to get better, and and uh, you know, looking at your own assets, and and still trying to maintain uh, some flexibility for the future, whether it be in salary cap or 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 you know or or draft picks. But I mean, you have to you have to give up something to get something, and I, I just think you're always trying to improve. My question for you is, and I, and I I know how I feel about this. I think it's important, but how important is it? Uh, you have Fred, you have Pascal, guys that uh, have have held the trophy, but you also have Scotty Barnes, who a guy you're counting on in the future. How important is it for them to to get into to stay in a, a playoff spot, be it in the play-in? I mean, ideally, a seven-game series guaranteed would be what you would want for some of these. Uh, young guys to to see what it's like to be around the playoffs, see that what the intensity is like for uh, for 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 Banton, for Flynn, if they're still with you, uh, for Scotty Barnes. How important is it for them to to really stay in the hunt this year and and secure at least, if nothing else, a play-in spot? Well, I'd say it's important, Jonesy, because they're not going to secure a lottery spot, right? Like, or, or, or you know what I mean? They, they, they have no option of falling down the standings and picking fourth again. Well, that's just not going to happen. And so if you're going to be stuck in the middle, you might as well stuck, get stuck in the middle where, to your point, you are competing for something. 
And don't forget, this is a team that's a company that didn't have any home revenue from any 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 revenue last year from from home crowds, and is going to be missing at least a month, if not more, of home revenue revenue this year. So yeah, I think if uh, they could snap their fingers and have two seven game playoff series, first and second round, and you know six or seven more more six or seven playoff dates and a full build full building in the spring, I think that would be attractive. <laughs> MLSC um, for, for all the obvious reasons. And yes, it would benefit the, the development of, of some of their younger players and even guys like Fred and Pascal who don't have a ton of experience as the man on teams that are in super tight playoff series. So um, yeah, I think they're, they're in the middle and, you know, staying in the middle is, is kind of like the only thing they can't do, right? Like, like they, and they can't go backwards. So, you know, you might as well push forward. Speaking with Michael Grange from Sportsnet. Michael, we've been looking at a lot of big picture uh, with you over the last 10 minutes or so. Um, just maybe in closing, I want to go back to last night for a second. Uh, just on the one play alone, do you share in the sort of bewilderment or confusion? And, and again, I'll repeat as we did in our first hour. This is a conversation because it happened to the Raptors and we cover the Raptors, but I'd be asking the same question if it was uh, Dylan Brooks on Russell Westbrook. I am, and Jonesy is as well, completely baffled by any time the officials go to the review, especially when they're looking at potential flagrant fouls. I don't know what a common foul is anymore. I don't know what a flagrant one is. I don't know what a flagrant two is because when you watch that play last night with Martin and Barnes and then walk away and say that that was fine and that was just a common foul... I give up. I, I do not understand what the officials are looking at any longer. What about yeah, you? Yeah, I think that one really, I mean, we've seen some really soft flagrant ones, right? Like, just to yeah. like, what? That was, that was a flagrant one. You know, and that one, um, you know, I think if you look at the full picture and the, you know, I'm not saying Martin was trying to hurt the guy, but, you know, with the angle he was taking, the angle Scotty was taking, and man, I cringe. I was like, Scotty, you are really putting yourself in a dangerous situation there. Um, you, you know, I think it, it, to borrow it from a hockey kind of context, there is a little bit of responsibility on the player when you know a guy is putting himself in a really vulnerable situation uh, to to not make him pay the price for that. Like, like you, if a guy, if a guy's going face first into the glass, like. You're not supposed to rub them into the glass. You're supposed to maybe take an angle there. Um, and so I think there's two elements to that. One was, you know, he, he went to block the ball, but he sw- he swiped at it, right? Like he just wasn't a t- trying to touch it. He was trying to – he swung his arm and he got his head. So that's, you know, that's usually flagrant one. And then when they went into the, the stands there or off the court, you'll see a lot of guys kind of ra- do a wrap, right? They'll try and get their arms in front of the guy because they're trying to protect him. And, you know, Martin not only had his hands on Scotty's back or his arm on Scotty's back, to maybe he's trying to right himself, but there was, it did look like in slow motion. There was a bit of a shove there. And, uh, you know, I think it wasn't much of a shove, but when a guy's going 100 miles an hour and out of control, it doesn't take much of a shove to uh, really create a problem. And, and so, yeah, I thought, uh, I thought that was – I thought Martin – I thought Scotty's – play was a little reckless to be perfectly honest i was like man you're really putting yourself you're hoping nobody does something stupid and i thought uh, martin's play was a little reckless and i thought his extra was a little irresponsible and yeah i i, I would have seen i i'm almost like you could if you had to go flavor one you should have got flavored two 
right? Like, because I mean, if you saw if you saw flagrant uh, yeah. one, that's kind of a bailout. It's either like a common foul, or you got to toss the guy because you know you saw what you and I saw. I, I thought it was a little over. Michael, we appreciate I, the time. Him, Michael. And, oh, I, I know we. E, e, I know we got to go. Michael, I'd have tossed him on a flagrant two, and I think Scotty did the right thing. I, I, I don't think – I mean, you, you've got a breakaway, and you know a guy might be chasing you. That ball can't leave your hand. If you're capable of dunking it, that ball has to go in. I just wish he would have just taken a little swerve, swerve and gone up a little bit of an angle and gone with two hands because then you're not – you can protect all right, yourself. All right. In that scenario, he was just hoping – Nobody was going to yeah. – he, he did not protect himself one little bit. Michael, uh, now I'll jump in. We appreciate the time as always. <laughs> Thanks for this, man. Uh, we'll talk soon and uh, see you, I guess, down at the building this weekend. All the best. All the best, guys. Take care. There is Michael Grange from Sportsnet. Appreciate his time as always. As I remind you again, folks, make sure you subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcast. Please rate and review as well. We will be back again tomorrow.